Traveling the Vortex. Rah, rah, rah! Cheers for the colony! We're the gang that works the hardest and we must obey! Obey control! Ring the bell! Rah, rah, rah! Rah, rah, rah! Work well! Ring the bell! Yay! Yay! Attention colony! Get back to work! We've joined the doctor as he travels the vortex and landed episode number 295. Remember, confusion is best left to the experts. I'm Keith. I'm Sean. I'm Glenn. How are you guys? I'm an expert at confusion. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good. Do you guys have a good week? Yeah. Yeah. Did you do anything exciting? I finally got Holly to watch Flash Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) I saw your post! So my sister posted on, I think it was Wednesday, on Facebook, that she was watching Flash Gordon and that people didn't know that it's one of her favorite movies, if not her favorite movie. Was she watching that on cable? Because my she was watching in-laws had that on their TV when we stopped by, too. could have been. On Wednesday. And it could have been then. And uh, so she had posted that, and Holly had mistakenly made the remark in her comments, well, I've never seen that, but don't tell my husband. <laughs> <laughs> so I immediately responded with, I know what we're doing Saturday. And so uh, I said, well, do you want to watch it? She said, yeah, we'll give it a try. So I hollered at Caitlin because I knew she hadn't seen it either. I said, you want to watch this with us? And she said, so... We got done, and I said, what do you guys think? Of course, they you know, they, they laughed and kind of cheesed about it and, and laughed at how silly and campy it is. And, of course, you know, I had warned them, and they both kind of knew it was campy. <laughs> I said, so what do you think? And Holly said, yeah, it was, it was okay, which is a ringing endorsement from yeah, my from wife Holly, because <laughs> for that type of film, oh, yeah. which is really not in the genre of things that she likes, she actually enjoyed it. So I was like, okay. Caitlin thought it was pretty good. She says it's kind of corny, but she said it's pretty good. That's awesome. The seed has now been planted. Yes. So, yeah. and then yesterday I worked in the yard and wrenched my back. That's why we're recording so late this week. Wrenched my back sometime. I don't. That was the sad thing is we did so much stuff. I don't know when I did it, and then I went inside, and I, as I kind of as I went up inside and sat down, it's I could feel it seizing up, and I was like, oh no, this is going to be bad. And sure enough, it was. So, I took some. I took some happy pills and went to <laughs> went to sleep for a while, hoping it would go away, but it never went away. Mm. For the good of the colony. For, for the, the good, good of the colony. colony. I was off almost all last week, and we watched a lot of stuff. Uh, Charlie Wilson's War. The Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. Okay, and it was enjoyable. Uh, it's an Aaron Sorkin film. If you didn't know that, I didn't know that. Yeah, he wrote that. It's about middle of the pack for Aaron Sorkin stuff. I, I, I enjoyed it. So, but So now I have one Aaron Sorkin film left to tackle before I've seen all of his stuff. Then I introduced Sarah to Deadpool because she had not seen that one yet. How'd she do with it? She thought it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, at the end, enjoyed it. Um, at the end or in the end? In the end. Okay. In the end, we... Because she, she only enjoyed the end, and then that doesn't say much for her, her liking the film. But no, she, she in the end, it. okay. Uh, we all, I also introduced her to the Kingsman this week, which she had not seen either. Secret Service. Yeah. She thought that was weird too. Oh, <laughs> uh, we also went and saw Kubo and the Two Strings. Oh yeah, that we went and saw Kubo and the Two What'd Strings. What do you think? I don't know. We didn't actually get to see it. We just went. Oh. 
That sounds like a trial of error. We, we, of we, we went and got in and got our tickets and got uh, you know popcorn and pop and held seats for Patrick and his date and we we're all set. And the power goes out. Oh no! And so I'm sitting there in the dark in the theater and the emergency lighting kicks on and I noticed it's that it's it's a different kind of lights you out. Friday night, didn't you? No, we were there Saturday afternoon. Oh, but it's a different kind of. It's not like a dimming of the lights. It's like the air conditioner stopped running. Something's wrong. <laughs> so I go out and look, and all the emergency lighting's on, and people are kind of milling around. It's like, oh, well, let's, we'll just wait, and they'll kick it back on or whatever. No, flashlighted attendants came and moved everybody out of the building. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked, I said, is this a serious thing that you're moving? And he's like, no, it just happens sometimes. You know, we're running 14 projectors. Sometimes we overload the breakers and huh. lose power. And I'm like, it's a 14-screen building. Like, yeah. you built this knowing that you were going to run 14 <laughs> projectors and a popcorn machine. You should have had. Sounds like they skimped on the electrician. Yeah. So uh, I'm standing there in the parking lot with my, my large popcorn. And my <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yep, somewhere. Mm. Um, yeah, didn't get to see Kubo. So got well, a free voucher for next time. But We uh, really liked it. Is it good? Yeah, we liked it a lot. Sarah also saw Star Trek the motion picture for the first time. And? And she really enjoyed it. She had a lot of fun watching it. Uh, and then, as part of our Cody Day celebrations, because we had adopted him one year ago, we watched uh, Best in Show, which we had never <laughs> seen. <laughs> wow. It's a good thing Cody doesn't understand English. <laughs> Uh, it's it's not the best of the Christopher Guest films, but it's a pretty good. See, I, pretty I don't fun know if movie. I've seen the, I've I've seen this is Spinal Tap, but I don't think I've seen any of the other. Even ever Waiting for Guffman is the That's, best. We picked that one up at the that library after watching Best in Show. Absolute best Christopher Guest. It's movie. the best if you've done theater. Okay, oh, it's better if you've done theater, but it's it, yeah. Well, so I I'll guess, probably really I guess like it. Sarah, a question. lot if you have not done. I guess theater. I did theater, so maybe that's why I watched it before I had done theater, so that I, did, I missed a lot of it, and then afterwards I went, oh, <laughs> I get it now. I get it now. Well, we, we stopped at a one of our favorite dog shops in Lawrence, and we bought a little cupcake for Cody, you know. Uh, and the lady behind the counter asked if we had seen the movie because she, the terrier. In Best in Show is, a sim- is very close to what Cody is. He's not quite. Uh, so she was like, yeah, there are some really devoted uh, Karen Terrier dog parents in that. You should probably watch that. <laughs> and so now, next year, we're going to memorize the God Loves a Terrier song for... <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of stuff we really liked about it, and then there's other stuff we were just kind of scratching our heads of... I don't know about that. And to think in some countries these animals are eaten. <laughs> uh, Sarah also finally finished Pushing Daisies. Yeah. And finally got through all that. And she loved all of that. Uh, the last thing we watched was uh, Purple Rain. Throwback. <laughs> Neither of us had seen. And after Prince passed, we thought, well, we should see that. So... Put on a, on hold for the library and finally got it and watched it and yeah, <laughs> I don't think I liked it. <laughs> I'm not a I, the, the songs were good in it and it, it that was interest and that was kind of the music kind of kept us going throughout all of it. <laughs> but other than that, uh, really, at the end of it, Sarah afterwards, Sarah uh, said she rather enjoyed it, but or said it was okay. 
Purple Rain, I think, is an acquired taste. I think it, I, I'm going to I'm going to go out on the limb. I'm going to say it. I think it's one of those films that people remember more fondly well, than it actually. I think does. Purple Rain is <laughs> that last especially now. Fifteen I, minutes are fantastic, where he actually gets up and sings yeah. Purple Rain. Well, I not think, once did it rain purple water in that movie. <laughs> I think Purple Rain's a much better film when you watch it in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> You watch it now; it's kind of dated. I think. I'd give you that one. Yeah. We watched uh, Moontrap. What is that? Moontrap. <laughs> so back in the day, it was made like in I don't know eighty eight or eighty nine. Um, this movie came out, and I found out that Walter Koenig, for the Chekhov from Star Trek, was in this movie. Oh, I remember seeing that on video shelves every once in a while. Yeah, wondering what it was, and and so I, I rented it and watched it, and it was all right. It's kind of a low budget, you know, sci fi slash horror thing, uh, and it just came out on Blu ray recently. And Bruce Campbell's on the cover. And I went, what? <laughs> Bruce Campbell was in this movie? <laughs> so I rented it and brought it home. And I was like, we, we watched this sometime. So we watched it. And not only is Bruce Campbell in the movie, he's second banana. Well, he's like in the movie almost all the way through. I'm having a real deja vu moment. Did we talk about this on we, podcast we, last week or afterwards? We, we, uh, we talked about it afterward line. when oh. I brought it home. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, so it was a couple weeks ago when we were really really ago that I finally got to it. Here. Okay. All right. But Sorry. yeah, he's he's in it. And I told him, I was like, you know, this is the weird thing is I know I've seen this movie. I can't tell you one thing about it. I mean, moon track. <laughs> it's got the moon in it. I'm pretty sure these guys are astronauts. But that's really about all I could. And as it went on, I kept waiting for the spark of memory for me to go, oh, yeah. Never, never came. It was kind of like watching a completely new movie that I know that I've seen <laughs> until the cyborg... They they go to the moon and there's a race of cyborg aliens on the moon that are building a machine out of leftover NASA lunar probe parts and dead bodies uh, to try and get to Earth so that they can invade. That's the that, that's more than you need to know about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, it's a decent little B flick for what they had the money to do, but but yeah, it's, it was just like okay. And she looked at me. She goes, "You don't need to buy that one." I was like, "No." <laughs> It's, it's it's fine. It's a it's a, it's a low budget sci fi film, and they do some cool things for you know not having any money, being able to do. They built the robot. That was kind of cool. Yeah. What else? Anybody else do anything fun? No. That's pretty right. much it. Let's move on to news. Our first bit of news comes from our friends over at Candy Jar Books. They've announced Havoc Files Two. What's Havoc Files 2, Keith? It's a second volume of the Havoc Files, collecting the short stories released during the first half of 2016. Hooray! So it includes In His Kiss, The Lock-In, The Black Eggs of Khufu, The Band of Evil, and The Plain Dead. And of course, as with the previous volume, it includes a brand new story, uh, exclusive to the book, written by Andy Franco-Mallon, called Ashes of the Inferno. Uh, Andy says as the title suggests this is connected to the 1970 serial Inferno and indeed it begins the same day the Doctor returns from the alternate Earth (laughs) I'll have you know I uh, I'm glad you you told us that because if it had not had anything to do with the Inferno (laughs) I I may have been a little bit mad (laughs) I'll have you know I put my uh, order in on Saturday for my copy Maybe it was Yay. Friday. So. I'm assuming with, uh, as with the first volume, it's a limited uh, edition. It is. Yep. It is. And not only is it one new story, it's two new stories exclusive to it. Oh. So double the reason to go pick it up. Uh, the second brand new story is called House of Giants, 
written by Rick Cross, a newcomer to the Lethbridge-Stewart line. It picks up on a thread referenced in the most recent Lethbridge-Stewart novel, Grandfather Infestation, and deals with the aftermath of Planet of Giants. Ooh. <laughs> so you'll have to read the Grandfather Infestation to recognize what that thread is, but Planet of the Giants, I mean, come on. We loved that one. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's something to do with the seeds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten about the seeds. Anyway, I'm hoping that uh, Andy will sign my copy again. So. I, I can give <laughs> hint, you a hint because I know somebody listening <laughs> to this podcast. I can give you a third reason to go out and order this book. There's also two special extras. In addition to the Fourth two reason. stories. <laughs> <laughs> Fifth? Did you, did you hear it? Did you hear the wind go? <laughs> <laughs> That's because he's dragging his feet telling us what's in this book. Come on, Keith. Because <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, there's a pro original prologue from John Peel's The Grandfather Infestation and unpublished interludes from The Showstoppers. So unpublished un- uh, new content from those two novels. Ah. New content from Showstoppers? Yeah. Oh, it's worth the price, <laughs> worth the cover price for just that. What's the fifth reason? It's 30% off right now. Oh, yes. How do they get that 30% off, Keith? Just enter the code EPICLS30. But hurry, because it's only good through the end of the month, right? <laughs> we are so prepared, guys. <laughs> Ooh. Enter that code. It's a special code for the Vortex listeners. You put that code in, and you get 30% off. However, you have to use it by the end of the month because it is over end on... End of September. Oh, I'm sorry. End of September. Is it end of September? End of, end of September. September. This, end of one, September. this one expires September. Another code that we have it expires the first. So, yes, by the end of September, and you can get your 30% off your order. That's right. But you should go do it sooner than in September because it will probably sell out yes. quickly. Yes. You the have last to go to yet, so. uh, Candy, Candy Jar's w- website and order it through there. That's the only place you can get it. That one, that particular book will not be sold through other booksellers either. So you have to get the Havoc Files too through Candy Jar Books website. And we will have a link in our show notes. We're so professional. <laughs> hey, what do you want, man? I don't <laughs> If you come to me for news, <laughs> you're going to be disappointed. What else do we have? <laughs> you come to me for my reactions to this. What else I was excited over saving uh, some, some money. Some guests have been announced for several Doctor Who cons coming up, including Gallifrey 1, 2017. Uh, number of the... Usuals like Paul McGann, Louise Jameson, William Russell, Katie Manning, Annika Wills, Peter Purvis, Philip Hinchcliffe is returning this year, Daphne Ashbrook. Um, but someone who had to cancel last year, Lala Ward, will be appearing this year. And Lala does not do American cons, so. Obviously, she does. She's doing Gallifrey One. It's an American con, it's isn't it, Sean? The first one in 20 some odd years for her. In America. So she does American cons. She just takes three decades off. <laughs> what else, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're going to come to me for news, you're going to get some jabs. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> oh. Okay, I'll give you that one. <laughs> uh, Chicago TARDIS has also announced several guests. Uh, if you have not been clo- uh, following them closely, Michelle Gomez is going to be at Chicago TARDIS this year. Uh, as well as some of the usuals, Fraser Hines, Louise Jameson. Uh, but John Leeson is going to be there in the voice of K9, along with Wendy Padbury. I'm really kind of surprised that you've toned it down to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to keep it in check. 
I let him know. Meanwhile, he's on the other side of the internet uh, getting his tickets as we speak. <laughs> I let him know. It's like, did, did you know that John Leeson was going to be? I, I didn't know. I don't know how I missed I, that I, one. I didn't know it either. John Leeson is listed on Chicago Tartars' website, and he sent me a sticker on the Facebook messaging group. Not like a little smiley face sticker. Like those big gargantuan, <laughs> as big as you can get smiley face stickers? <laughs> it was a shock face one. Because I did not know. Keith's holding out. He knows that John Leeson's eventually going to come to time, Eddie. That's right. That's what I'm crossing my fingers for. <laughs> but Chicago's not that far away. Keith. It isn't. And it's Chicago. And I've never been to Chicago. So. See? More it's reason to go. It's a win-win. Although I'd probably never see Chicago because I'm going to be in Chicago Tartars the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> you believe you can say, hey, I've been to Chicago. That's true. Well, you, you take well I think I did day. have a layover in Chicago well, at one point. You've been so. to Chicago then. You take one extra day. You yeah, see Chicago. True. Not that you can do Chicago in a day, but I had a layover in New Jersey one time, so I consider that I've been there. Anytime I take those quizzes, you know which states have you been to? <laughs> I always count New Jersey. Yeah. I was in New Jersey. How many hours were you in New Jersey? Uh, two and a half. You saw New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I've got relatives in Jersey. I can say that. I, I had a friend told me that uh, the best part of New Jersey is the inside of the airport. So <laughs> there you go. Ten. Yeah, probably the Statue of Liberty is number two. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've been to the Statue of Liberty, and that's technically in Jersey proper. So oh, I've been there so too. have I. And oh, I see. you've seen, and you've I seen New Jersey over, then. And I floated over to Ellis Island, which is in New Jersey for sure. So, Undisputedly. New Jersey should succeed from the Union and take the Statue of Liberty with them. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to start some crap, you know? Just... They should get out there and spray a white chalk line on the ocean surface. <laughs> this is ours. Uh, the boat to Liberty Island, fifteen bucks. The one-day visa, two hundred fifty. <laughs> Not so loud to give brand back ideas. <laughs> uh, and people driving across country would have to go around. <laughs> they go around now anyway, Sean, or fly right on over. We're, we're called a flyover state for a reason. Yep. Our last bit of news is some animated uh, trailer stuff that I have not seen, so Sean, take it away. Okay, so here, here's the long and story. Sean, have you seen story. it? I haven't seen it either. <laughs> and I blame you. I took a week off. I wasn't on the online much. So so a story broke. I don't even know if we can call it a story. A rumor broke earlier this week. <laughs> a video broke. A video broke. <laughs> and you know how we are about reporting on rumors. And you know how I am about reporting on this rumor in particular. <laughs> missing episodes. Um, it's the, the apparently Power of the Daleks, a almost two-minute segment showed up animated online. And the uh, uh, everybody started the speculation about why are they animating uh, Power of the Daleks because it's a four-part story. And yes, it's Patrick Troughton's first, so it's a very important one, but none of the rest of it exists. Unless maybe we found some of it. And immediately everybody jumped in and said, hey, you know what, it, the animation doesn't look, you know, it's, it's fan done. But then somebody else said, no, it's too good on the animation, so it's, 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 it's definitely a professional company. Maybe it's Cosgrove Hall, then that got debunked, and uh, nobody really knows anything. The interesting part of the story is that it's now disappeared. You can't find it anywhere. I've looked. Hold I spent all night years. yesterday, all day today, looking for this clip that supposedly was online. And I keep finding little blurry static message screens that say this has been pulled because of copyright owned by the BBC. So, BBC is the one pulling it, or at least flexing the muscle saying, take it down. Which I think is almost the more interesting part of this. So, 
is is it a thing? Or did we really are we going to get an animated version of of Power of the Daleks or an animated segment of Power of the Daleks? And is BBC behind it? And are they doing that one because they've just decided that they're going to start animating everything, which sounds a little wonky? Or did they find something and they haven't said anything yet? But if they did that, why didn't we get an animated underwater menace? Well, explain it, Glenn. I certainly think that's true. <laughs> now, I, I think the problem is uh, underwater menace was a a half promise, and so I think that the BBC felt like they had to fulfill that and i think that they're do probably doing away with the dvd releases and i think they're looking for the next phase and that's to to launch into probably putting these on blu-rays the best thing about that is if you take and you put doctor who on blu-ray it's really just up converting the versions we have now because they are not in high definition that doesn't utilize blu-ray to the extent that it utilizes blu-ray but if you look at power of the daleks which is probably arguably one of the most sought after most wanted stories um, because those who have seen it remember it as a fantastic story and those of us that have seen reconstructions or listened to audios of it can get uh, get the idea that it is a really good story because it really is and so i think the bbc may be testing the waters here as far as if we're going to take and do something let's do something that we can do full scale high definition that's not just up converting our episodes put it out there, do a fully animated one, test the waters with something that's really super highly popular so that they can get some money out of it, test the waters with Blu-ray and see if Blu-ray is a viable thing to continue the line and start to re-release Doctor Who on Blu-ray, upconverting it, while every, you know, seventh release, having an animated one that's of a missing episode interjected in there to keep some interest in the line, keep some, you know, some re- keep some vitalization within the uh, Blu-ray series. And the other thing that could be is if they're looking to put together seasons of Blu-rays rather than releasing them one story at a time as they did with DVD, looking at doing like Hartnell season or a uh, uh, Trout season or, or, or so on and so forth, that may be the way to go is to spend a lot of time creating the... Uh, animations to fit in there so you have a complete, you know, Patrick Troughton series or a complete um, William Hartnell series. The problem with doing Power of the Daleks in, in that reasoning is that there's a lot of early Troughton that's missing. Yeah. And so it, it you know, it makes sense to do it. Well, it would make sense to do it with a couple of the Hartnells because the Hartnells are going to. Uh, uh, have a, a lot fewer missing episodes in there, and something some of the Trout stuff or some of the Hartnell stuff's already animated, so you've got those ready made. So I, it, it may be just them testing the waters. I think it might be uh, also if they release these, even if we don't go on a full season of something coming out, something as epic as animating something is going to drive Blu-ray sales, and you could just release that one story on on Blu-ray and and call it good, and then you know look at the sales and see if it drives the sales and if it does something they might continue to consider on down the line because they'll actually make a return on it so they can charge a little more for the blu-rays they can you know offer more uh, options on a blu-ray they can do a lot of things not to mention the, the beauty of doing it in high def yeah here's that where being <laughs> said this is still a rumor <laughs> and cool. could, there is a lot of off-the-shelf software and my uh, let me let me let me play devil's advocate with this as why this is probably fan made. Despite the fact that people are saying it's too good to be fan made, 
is the fact that there's only two minutes out there. And there are a lot of fans that are using off-the-shelf software. And if you're going to do two minutes and you concentrate, you know, eight months to it, you can do a any fan could really do a really good two-minute clip of 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 an episode. Well, that ten minute and make it look good. Japanese anime style, exactly, exactly. And that took them what two years? They said or three years, something like that. So that's that's my point. Is until I see more, until I see more clips, I will never shake that back in my mind oh this is probably definitely a fan-made thing because we only got a certain amount of it so i um well who knows if it's one of the people one of the guys who worked for the company that had previously animated and just doing it for fun on the side on his own that's could could explain why it looks so good it's because he is a professional he's just doing this as a fan for fun who knows who knows (laughs) Should we move on to feedback? Then? Yes. Yeah, let's, let's move on to feedback. <laughs> Our first bit of feedback comes from Robert. Robert says, Beyond the Doctor 12. Hello. Just a quick comment on the next Beyond the Doctor. It's too bad that local hero is too difficult to find. Is so difficult to find as it's Peter Capaldi's first or second acting role. It would be interesting to have a comparison between his acting then and now. It's also just a darn good movie. Keep up the good work and looking forward to seeing you at Time Eddie 2. Robert. <laughs> Robert. <laughs> you sounded like the Chiefs guy. <laughs> Price chopper. And he rolls the R's like that. Thanks, Robert. Maybe one of us will have to track down local hero and watch it on our own to, to give a personal comparison. Who's next? Up next in feedback is Brenda. Brenda. Where's Brenda? There's Brenda. Brenda writes... Oh my gosh, we have feedback. I'm still flabbergasted by this. <laughs> Resident Anglophile checking in. Dear Vortex Gang, you knew it was bound to happen. You tangented onto kings and queens, and now the Anglophile has to weigh in. If this stuff is of no interest to you, I do apologize. You are under no obligation whatsoever to read it on mic. <laughs> Brenda, when has that ever stopped us? The line to the British throne has always passed. That sounded like we weren't interested, and I didn't mean to sound that. Because like <laughs> inter- I, I find it fascinating. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I've read her email like three times, and I still don't understand it, but I'll read it. The line to the British throne has always passed to the oldest son, until recently, when, par- when Parliament changed the law before Prince George was born. Now, the firstborn child of the reigning king or queen becomes heir to the throne, regardless of gender. And the line for the throne progresses through all of the children. The way England had ruling queens in the past was when there were no sons or the sons died, leaving only female children of the king. Henry VIII desperately wanted a son after his first three sons were either stillborn or died in infancy. His first wife, Catherine, finally had Mary, who did live. Then Anne Boylan had Elizabeth, and his third wife had Edward, the first son who lived. When Henry died, his son, the youngest of his legitimate children, became Edward VI. But he didn't reign for long and had no kids. So when he died, his half-sister Mary, or Bloody Mary, came to the throne in a convoluted way. Edward tried to will it to someone else, but that didn't work. She tried to force the country back to Catholicism after Henry VIII had rejected it. There's a lot of eyes in that one. Executing lots of Protestants along the way. When she died childless, childless, Half-sister Elizabeth came to the throne and reversed Mary's laws about Catholicism. She never married that the public knew about. She obviously kept her marriage to the doctor a secret, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> That's the best part of this. You all day. She died childless, so the throne went to James, the king of Scotland, who united England and Scotland and set off a whole new conflict. In the 19th century, Victoria came to the throne when her father and grandfather, the king, died in the same year, and all of her father's older brothers had died, died childless. As for Elizabeth II, her uncle, called David by the family, became Edward VIII. He was a playboy and not terribly suited for the throne, but it was his job to be king, and he accepted it. However, he was in love with American Wallace Simpson. Wallace? Wallace? How's that pronounced? Do you know, know Glenn? Good enough. Okay. And the problem wasn't that she was American, but that she had been divorced and was getting a second divorce to marry Edward. At that time, the Anglican Church, which is the Episcopal Church here in the States, didn't allow divorced persons to remarry. And since the King of England is also the head of the church, the church leaders convinced Parliament to oppose the match because they felt people wouldn't accept Simpson as queen. He was told to choose between the throne and Wallace, and he chose her. He had no children, so it fell to his younger brother to take over. Edward and Wallace did marry and lived in exile in Paris until they died of old age. There's that happy ending I asked about last week. Uh, Queen Elizabeth and her family remained in touch and visited, but I don't know how close they were. Her dad, called Albert, or Bertie by family, became a reluctant king. You know his story through the king's speech. He called himself King George to bring continuity from his parents, George and Mary. You know how the royals have four or five names, they just choose one to use officially. The queen has always contended that the stress of being thrust onto the throne contributed to his early death. She became queen because Albert had just the two girls, and she was older than her sister Margaret. The reason that Philip is a prince and not a king is because Elizabeth is the ruler, and were he called king, he would in essence outrank her. He is known as the prince consort. Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, was in the same position. Charles is going to be an interesting case because both he and Camilla are divorced. But the church and parliament are more lenient about that now. However, the reportedly he reportedly promised his mother that he will not name her queen, but rather some sort of consort such as Philip is known. We'll have to see how that turns out. As long as Will and Kate stay together, they will be the first true king and queen on the throne since Elizabeth's parents... King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. So, this is my American rambling through British royal lines. I guess it is mostly who related since it is a British show. I just can't help being fascinated by all things British. Consider this my light bulb and gutter interest. <laughs> One related comment. I watched the Doctor Who marathon on BBC America all last weekend and was reminded all over again how much I love Moffat's Christmas episodes. They showed all 11 Christmas episodes along with a selection of other popular ones, and they actually ran the full-length shows other than the usual edited ones. I hope you all have a great week, and I may even tune in to Gridlock this week if I'm awake. If I don't see me tweeting along, just know that my old bones are sleeping. Old age is definitely not for sissies. Brenda in Atlanta. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Brenda. And I, I, I actually feel pretty good because I think between Keith and I, <laughs> last week, we were pretty darn close. You got pretty close to so most of it. I'd say why we were probably didn't. in the 73% right range there, which I think is passing. Yeah. And, uh, we you you are, got a high are, C. You got a C-. minus. I was in the back of the class with the dunce cap on. But, um. <laughs> Looking off of Keith and my paper. Um, so yeah, which so has never worked out well good. for me. How, I don't know that, why. I continue to that do being that. said, as much as we muddled through it, she actually laid it out very concisely. Yes, it was very informative. So thank you, Brenda. And and I 
quite frankly, the British monarchy has always fascinated me, and I always seem to piecemeal getting my information on it. So it's really nice to hear somebody sit down and kind of give a more concise, you know, uh, answer to a lot of those things we discussed last week. So I, I what I'm going to do is I'm going to save her email, and then I'm going to go and paste movie posters into it. So, like, here's the king, where the king's speech is, and here's where Shakespeare in Love would have taken place, and here's where here's where Elizabeth was. here's where Elizabeth was, so that I can because there was two chunks of that. I, I'm sure that if I really did some work on it, I could put a complete timeline of the royal family together just through movies. You could, you could put oh, a, yeah. you could put an audio clip from uh, Hermit's Hermits in there when she's talking about Henry VIII. Yeah, and uh, wasn't that Hermit's Hermits into Henry VIII? Henry VIII. I'm Henry VIII. I am Henry VIII. I am. I am. It has nothing to do with the king, but. There you go. Nope. <laughs> I got married to the widow next door. She's, She's been, been married seven times, times before. Everyone was a Henry. Henry. Wouldn't have a Willie or a Sam. All right. <laughs> I'm a wraithful man. I'm Let's Henry. move on. Henry the Eighth. Next I am. is I finish Chrissy. It. Chrissy writes, if George Orwell was afraid of seafood. Dear Vortex Boys, a word or two on Pride, Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen in general. I am not surprised in the least that none of you are huge P&P fans. <laughs> I have yet to meet a guy who liked Jane Austen. I have read and reread Pride and Prejudice and seen as many screen adaptations as I can. The Colin Firth one is the best, but the Kira Knightley one is good if you don't have five hours to spend. I will admit to loving Sense and Sensibility a bit more, though. That's not a dig against Pride and Prejudice. Sense and Sensibility is just that good. Anyway, Jane Austen novels are more or less a female thing. I'm sure there are men out there who love Austen, but I don't know any personally, nor have I heard of them. I will say that after hearing your review of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, I might actually give that one a try, if only to see Matt Smith play Mr. Collins. That's the first I've ever heard of him called Parson Collins, honestly. <laughs> That is actually a perfect role for him, now that I think of it. Definitely looking forward to his role in The Crown. Anyway, The Macra Terror. I listened to the audio version with Colin Baker doing the linking narration. I think there's another one where Anakin Wills does the narration, but this was the one I had access to. I know you all are reviewing different recon versions, but I want to give my impressions of the story. I really enjoyed this. The movie, uh, The story moved along at a fairly good pace, and I was never bored. Sometimes these audio-only missing episodes, I'll start to get bored partway through, but that didn't happen here. I was invested in the story from start to finish. It's like 1984, but with a monster movie aspect. Not quite based under siege, more like Big Brother is invading crustacean slave... Uh, excuse me. Big Brother is an invading crustacean <laughs> slaveholder. I love that Ben fell under the mind control system, but Jamie and Polly didn't. It made the peril hit home for Team TARDIS in a way that doesn't happen very often. Reminds me of the Mara controlling Tegan in Kenda and Snake Dance. There are similar tropes at play here, too. Of course, I hope that someday all of the missing episodes can be found, but this one, but this is one that moved to the top of my please, please, please find these missing episodes wish list. Even if we just had one episode to see, that would be great. Well, that's all I have this week. I'm slowly moving my way through the back catalog of everything I've missed. I need something to keep me from losing my mind as I cover this miserable political season for work. And you guys are a key part of helping me do that. Thank you, three, for everything you do. It may seem like you're just goofing off from week to week, but some of us need that joyous goofiness. Take care, Chrissy. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you, Chrissy. 
Chrissy, I feel so sorry that you have to cover this goofy politicalness for work. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that we can give you some uh, relief yes. from the miserable political stuff. Absolutely. And thanks for writing. Yes. It's good to hear from you. We haven't heard from you in a while. A few uh, weeks, anyway. Yeah. Uh, you, too, can send us feedback if you want. Feedback at Traveling the Vortex or on the f- our website, Send Us Feedback tab. Uh, you can also reach out to us on Facebook, uh, Traveling the Vortex, and Twitter, at Travel Vortex. And don't forget to go vote in the Goodreads poll for September. Yeah. Already. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> September. Uh, yeah, so that poll is available to uh, vote on. And as always, thank you guys for uh, 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 Holly and Chrissy and um, the gang. The gang. <laughs> and oh, all. Mitch and, Mitch Mitch and, and, and uh, um, <laughs> Rachel. I couldn't think of her name. It's mainly, it's mainly Holly. But thank you guys for running the book club. And, and uh, if you're a member of the, the Traveling the Vortex book club, thank you for that as well. Uh, Chrissy did put a review of Stone Rose. You want to go ahead and read it? Yes, I'm pulling it up now. All right. She wrote, I actually listened to the audiobook for this one a while back, and I listened to it again this go-around, but this time with a physical copy of the book on hand to refer to. I remember enjoying it quite a bit the first time, but then I listened to the guys talk about it on the podcast and didn't like it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm woefully behind. I still like re-listening to the audiobook, but the one thing I realized this time around was is just how much was cut out of the audio version versus what was what's in the printed book. I don't remember seeing that the audio book audio was abridged, but apparently it was. The edit may have something to do with my enjoyment of the story. Also, David Tennant narrates the audio book of this, and I could listen to him read a phone book, quite honestly. <laughs> His voice for the genie is quite adorable. I still enjoyed the story. In my mind, it's not quite Rose and the Doctor I see. The characters feel different from what's presented on TV. Jacqueline Rayner goes in for more of the romance between Rose and the Doctor, which I realize isn't everyone's cup of tea. I liked it well enough, though. It's true, this feels like two different stories smashed together, and I would have liked to see more than Vanessa's t- more of Vanessa's time and the invention of the genies in a separate story. But for what this story is, it's a fun side adventure for Team TARDIS. Just like all the other new series books I've read have been. Chrissy, indeed, you are correct. It is an abridged version. In fact, the uh, when the BBC was recent, releasing those on their books, for, uh, I want to say, at least the first four years, everything was read uh, abridged. Uh, none of the stories uh, for out of those years were unabridged, uh, save a few of the special books that came out. I think since then, the majority of books, since, well, at least back past the last five years, most of the books have been available in an unabridged, unabridged version. But anything prior to that is is an abridged version of those. Which is probably the reason why they're able to get people like David Tennant to come in and read. I think David <laughs> Warner did some. Um, I can't remember some of the other some of the other big names. David, David Warner would have made the story of Martha good. <laughs> oh yeah. Some of the other big names that they are able to get in, uh, probably it's probably easier to tempt somebody if it's an abridged version. They don't have to spend as much long as as much time reading it. So, but yeah, in fact, a good chunk of, in fact, I think all of the Eccleston stories, most of the Tenet stories, and there might even be some of the the Matt Smith stories when they finally moved into that era that are only available abridged. So, is that why most abridged stories are abridged? Because so less for the reader to read. 
I've never understood I why there are that that's versions necessarily of the case. I'm just presuming that might be a tempting offer to get somebody in to do it because you don't have to pay them as much because they're not in the studios. They're not in the recording studios long. That being said, I think it probably is more so for the listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, a an unabridged audio book is quite daunting when you get them. I, I've I've listened to a few unabridged uh, books. See, I prefer the unabridged. I, I do too because I'd rather get the whole story. But I think the at least bef- uh, when they when audiobooks started getting really popular, I think the idea was that they uh, a listener would be more apt to listen to it if they didn't have all of the exponential stuff in there that yeah. maybe wasn't necessary. If it weren't sixteen discs or right, tapes, right. yeah. yeah. Back and I think that's probably you probably just hit the nail on the head. In the early days of audio cassettes, <laughs> they were abridging them to get them onto a smaller tapes, group. Yeah. Probably when DVDs or DVDs, when uh, CDs started becoming more popular, they probably started putting the unabridged out more because they didn't have as you know many didn't have as many discs. Well, and I know you can get. I know some. I think some it does have to do with price because yeah, the price point. Would Shatner's be up till now, the audiobook you could go out and buy on the shelf was an abridged version, but libraries got an unabridged version. Yeah, so. Which was I'm sure there's a lot of mitigating factors yeah. in there, but it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may, maybe the mindset is the you know well if you wanted to read the whole story you'd go read the book. You're listening to the audio, so obviously you want a shortened version. It's like no, I just enjoy well, having I, people read to me. But I think that I think I wonder if that was a popular opinion among people that yeah. did have audiobooks as they it did. They wanted a shorter. You want something you can listen to over two or three days, not an entire week and a half. You know, so or longer. <laughs> Depending on the book. Stephen King's The Dark Terror. <laughs> that I listened to, and it was all unabridged. And it took me months and months and months to listen to it. But it was, They're I so good. Well, right. should we move on to our review of the Macra Terror? Yes. In the far future, a group of humans is living in a... I, 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 Living in an <laughs> idyllic existence on a distant planet. Their colony is run like a giant holiday camp, and nothing seems to trouble their carefree existence. When one of them claims that the colony is being invaded by hideous monsters, no one takes him seriously. But the doctor's suspicions are immediately immediately aroused. What is the terrible menace that lurks at the heart of the apparent paradise? Why are the colonists aware of the danger that lies... Unaware of the danger that lies before their very eyes, and what is the macro terror? Dun dun dun! I enjoyed it. It's a simple story, but that doesn't. I don't mean that as a insult. I think it works to its benefit that it's not overly complex or overly. It, it's and it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, I think though a lot of. Trouton stories are that way. That's true. But I know what you're saying. For what it presents itself as, it could have been a more in-depth story. But by tempering that a bit and making it a little more straightforward, it actually comes across better. So maybe that's what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, especially after watching Gridlock, um, (laughs) I kind of thought this while while reading it and then watching it. It's, I think it's, when when you strip it down, it is a, quintessential Doctor Who story because you could almost have any doctor step into this Troughton role yeah, yeah. and it would work. It would work fantastic yes. for a seventh Doctor story. Same thing with Gridlock. Uh, you could, I could totally see the fourth Doctor 
uh, stepping in and dealing with this. Even the uh, 11 is kind of a bit more of a given since, you know, 11's closer to 2. But yeah. and, th- and that's one of the things I liked about it is while it is that kind of quintessential Doctor Who, any Doctor could do it, there are the second Doctor moments in it still that I can just... Hear, hearing him do it and then imagining him doing these different things that are, yes, it's so perfect for Troughton too. On the other hand, I think it's easier to, I think it would be easier to put any doctor in a lot of early Troughton stories than it would be in yeah, later when he finally finds his legs and gets, you know, develops that doctor character. I agree. Um, that being said, as you said, there are the doctor moments, especially when they, you know, gussy him all up and polish his shoes. <laughs> I really and wish his we had stills of that. And so then, he's able, <laughs> then he, he gets into the uh, strengthening machine with his clothes on and basically gets his clothes pummeled back to their original position, which <laughs> if, I think was if great. If not a little worse. Yeah, which I think was great. <laughs> now, now, I got to that moment in the book and I thought, oh, I wish we got, I hope we get telesnaps of that. And we really didn't. And that's the biggest moment for the entire story that I wish we had clips of. Yeah. I, on the other hand, I was quite surprised that there were as many telesnaps as there were. Oh, yeah. Um, we have watched stuff. Underwater Menace would be one good example of uh, the use of telesnaps that were very limited. And there are other stories that Loose Cannon actually had to manipulate photos from other things in order to continue to tell their story. This one seemed to have a good ch- – I think I, I could notice a few maybe out-of-story uh stills that were in there but very few very few that i look at and go i think that might have been from something else so there was a good number of telesnaps fortunately taken for this one and there were really quite a variety too it wasn't the same telesnaps reused over and over there was a nice uh, there when they were down in the in the caves and in the mine there was a little less variety but otherwise there was but that's and then you you do see uh, loose cannon get very creative in that sense because yeah. they would flip the negative for uh, some of the shots uh, the long shots down the the mine shaft or the uh, it's not a mine shaft well I guess it was it was an old shaft and uh, old tunnel and what I would notice is occasionally they would show me the same snap from one side. And then they would show me the same snap later from another side, making the tunnel look different. And yeah. I, I really appreciate that. And that's, Loose Cannon, I think, was, was and, and I don't have a lot to compare because I haven't seen a lot of other recons, but Loose Cannons was very, put a lot of care and dedication in making, being able to tell a story with still pictures. And I, I still appreciate that. And that's why I always gravitate to watch the Loose Cannon stuff because they're very creative. Yeah, I'm also a fan of the um, ticker tape. Yes. description of yes. what yes. the action yeah, is absolutely. that maybe you're not actually seeing from this one absolutely. still. Any any telesnap that doesn't have that I'm immediately turned off of because I, I, I like seeing that uh, if we're not going to have the linking narration explaining what's happening, I can, just hearing a scuffle doesn't let me know who's fighting or what's doing what. I need to have that text to tell me what's going on it's maybe a little less important for us since we've been marrying these with the yeah. novelizations uh, you know and having the story once again, really makes it so much more palatable, so much easier to to kind of invest yourself in it. Because uh, I'm kind of with Chrissy, I find that I, I, I have a really hard time with the, the, the telesnaps and the recons that sometimes I just find my attention kind of flagging. And I don't want to because it's Doctor Who and well, it's a story I haven't seen before. Well, particularly was, was referring to the audio yeah. reconstructions, not the, not the video reconstructions. Sometimes I still have trouble with those too. Yeah. Um, I actually 
back years ago when I was going back and 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 catching up on missing episodes that I hadn't seen, I actually had a preference of the audio because I preferred somebody there reading it to me. Now that we're doing the uh, books, coupling those with the telesnap reconstructions or the the video reconstructions, the picture reconstructions, I actually getting to the point where I prefer those. As a matter of fact, early in this week, I went and listened to. I, okay, let me. <laughs> I went and listened to the Macrotera, the one that's narrated by Colin Baker, early in the week because uh, I wanted I. I have been fascinated by this story for years. <laughs> I had a Doctor Who magazine one time that uh, back in the day they would, for missing episodes, they would really kind of lay out and recount the story in about you know three or four, maybe six or seven pages. And you could read uh, basically the gist of what the story was, and it, it laid it out. And that was the first um, exposure I had to the Macrotera. And I absolutely fell in love with that and thought, oh, I'd love to see this. But had put off doing anything with it until we did something <laughs> on this show. And so I got real excited. Well, obviously last week I was real excited, but I got real excited. <laughs> Actually, two weeks ago I was really excited because I thought we were doing it the next week. And it ended up being a Beyond the Doctor. But uh, I, I, I got real excited. And so I, I, the only thing I didn't do was I was going to go back and reread that magazine article that uh, I had read mm-hmm. years ago. But so I listened to the uh, audio narration, and there is she's, uh, Chrissy's right. There's an Annika Wells version back out there. It was released in a box set called "The Lost Stories," um, which basically she just re-recorded the audio, and I think they felt uh, that necessary since she was more connected well, to the sense. story than Colin was. But Colin's linking narration is fantastic. In fact, when he start, first start listening to him, you don't recognize that it's Colin Baker because there's no well, there's no sixth doctor. In there. <laughs> He's not doing a sixth yeah. doctor. Uh, but you, you you hear the little inflections that you go, oh, yeah, that's Colin. Okay. Um, so I listened to that first. And then after that was done, I picked up the book and started reading the book. And I, So I read through the book the rest of the week. And then, of course, uh, I didn't join Friday. Well, we didn't do this Friday. We, we did Gridlock on Friday, but I didn't join Gridlock. I w- uh, but I watched the reconstruction on Saturday and uh, mm-hmm. watched that. And just every iteration of this that I have done and maybe maybe I'm, I'm coloring my perspective perspective of it because I've gotten so familiar with the story I just absolutely am in love with this story and I think as you said it's it's a simple story it doesn't over exceed itself it doesn't ex- over exceed its boundaries Chrissy had the the best description of it is it is 1984 with a uh, monster movie or a monster story in there as well and they do that really well. And I think there's a lot of times that it mirrors uh, Big Brother, very oh, yeah. much so. And But on the, at the same time, it, it, it has that kind of 1950s uh, monster movie feel. And I think maybe that's another thing that appeals to me about it. I was most excited with the fact that we were going back, and I didn't get there, but I did rewatch Gridlock this weekend as well. And was most excited by that because I remember... I had read that magazine article before uh, Gridlock had come out, and when I was I was just aghast at the fact when that first was revealed <laughs> that it was Macra, I went, "What?" And I don't know if you guys know this, but until the Great Intelligence, that was the uh, reigning um, uh, story for having the most gap for a returning Uh-oh. monster in Doctor Who history. There was more than 40 years of difference between the first time the Macro were in Doctor Who 
and then to the point where uh, gridlock came wrong and it actually held the record for the most gap in returning monster until the great intelligence which surpassed that because of a a few years because of the fact that there was a a even larger gap for that um Anyway, I'm sure I didn't know that. That being said, I I I, I was I, after reading that and then watching, Grid, uh, yeah, Gridlock the first time, I just that that just wet my appetite for more macro. But I'm actually kind of surprised that I haven't gone back between then and now because of my uh, temptation to find out more about the macro. So this week's been really kind of a neat experience for me because I've really kind of enveloped myself in the whole macro uh, storyline. <laughs> Do you so. guys remember when we, when we, way back, year one, when we reviewed Gridlock and I had made the comment, it was like, wasn't this a thing? Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not crazy. I remember that there was something about crab monsters in early Doctor Who, and you were the one that said, "Oh yeah, it was blah blah blah." And I was old Patrick Trout and and we were just flabbergasted that you could take this monster to do it. So this was the cool thing: is watching these back to back, and and having the experience of doing that, and seeing how clever RTD was with his use of the macra. Because Keith, as you pointed out, it's a pretty simple story. I mean, they're in control of the colony, and you know they've got everybody on the mind control, and you're going to work for us and not know it. <laughs> but the macro in it. yeah, and be happy about it. The macro in the macro terror are obviously not mindless, you know, bug crab things. I mean, they, they they're capable of of controlling the the, the uh, goings on in the colony, and they've got some level of technical proficiency. Um, that uh, enables them to do all this kind of stuff versus the ones in gridlock which are just kind of you know crab monsters they're, they're just they're just kind of there and the doctor has a great throwaway line when he says oh well they used to have a, a you know an empire but uh, you know that's been toppled or I forget exactly what he said well, they de-evolved they de-evolved the usage of the word was devolved which I I didn't like I think you could have easily just Separated, and I think that was that was trying too hard to connect the two. I think what the heat, what needed to be done was it needed to be a uh, a species that hadn't quite evolved the way the first uh, macro that he'd encountered had evolved. So, but and that's neither here nor there. Sorry. I just I, I I liked the idea that he he said it because I while well, you mentioned that you know just about any doctor could be put in this story, which is true. I think yeah. I think any doctor could portray the role of the doctor in this but this story could not be made today agreed i i I, I think the idea that there are intelligent crabs operating machinery even in doctor who is probably a little too much now (laughs) if if you anthropomorphize yes i really didn't want to go there but (laughs) if you gave them a little more humanoid with claw hands or something then yeah then then i think but then you run the risk of it being silly and ridiculous and, and and whatnot um, so that's one of the things I think was actually kind of clever. Now, I can write it off that it's not all of the macro everywhere, that it's just right. this particular colony on New right, Earth. Right, exactly. That, uh, or maybe there were only uh, there were a couple of them, and it's, it's, they're like silverfish, then all of a sudden they just... Right. You know, well, they're, they're obviously... Oh, conditions are right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the beauty of the two. The parallel is the fact that it's still the, the toxic gas that they're yeah, living on. Yeah. And, and, and I love the fact that the, the, you don't even have to deviate from that. In, in doing gridlock and it sort of makes me wonder which came first for russell t because he wrote that episode which come first did he say i'd like to use the macro in a story or did he start writing gridlock and realize all oh, my monsters could be macro because there's going to be all this these exhaust fumes in here 
So I'd like to think it's the second that he went. Oh wait, you know it'd be perfect here, but uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I just I, it, it was really fun to be able to pair these two and 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 kind of see the parallels and the differences between them, and see that there was more to it than just hey, wasn't that a thing? You yeah, know, back yeah, in the, yeah, yeah, back in the day, which is more thought was put into it. It is the interesting perspective because, as you say, I think the nice thing about uh, uh, Gridlock is the fact that a new viewer that has no idea about the macro, or even even like you said, wasn't that something back in the day? You kind of had in the back of your head because you're a Doctor Who fan, but any new fan could still appreciate Deadlock. Gridlock could appreciate Gridlock for what it is because you don't have to know the backstory mm-hmm. of the macro, so it works so well in that system too. I see. It's probably a good thing that we didn't know the, or that I didn't know this because I'd have made you watch Macro Terror beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're finally, we're, finally yeah. we're finally getting around to doing an adversary <laughs> archive on the macro. We only have two elements to deal with, but. Uh, I don't know that they've been in. I was just—I was going to ask you. I yeah, noticed you didn't assign any According additional comics. Or, it, there, there is a a comedic uh, comic strip. I think yeah, that they from were the used back in. of one of the Titan comics. Yeah, but I don't ah, think they've been used in any other any other form in Doctor Who in any other uh, media. I think that's one of the other things that I really appreciate about Gridlock is the fact that you know, okay, we're going to go back and start pulling some classic monsters. Who you got, Macra? What? Well, <laughs> you know. that was that was well, Russell's and, and that was Russell's year, year, that was more. Russell's mo though. Yeah. He started the series with the, the Autons. Autons. I mean, for crying out loud, nobody knew who the Autons were unless you had watched Doctor Who so so many years ago, or were a classic Who fan and just happened to see one of the two stories that they're yeah. in. And that you know? that was another one that it wasn't until the hand flipped down on the mannequin yeah. that I went. Oh, I can't remember these guys. Yeah, exactly. So that that was that was the beauty of of Russell was was clever because while he did bring back the Daleks and he did bring back the Cybermen, he also knew that he could pander he could covertly pander to the classic series fans by introducing you know uh, adversaries that you flew under the radar of any of the new fans but were still cool, but had that just enough of that wink wink nudge nudge to the to the classic <laughs> fan that went oh, I know this he's talking about he's talking to me you know so yeah. that that's that was the neat thing about Russell T Davies bringing back things like that uh, back to the macro terror though what do you guys think of the the loose cannon reconstruction is it did you guys feel like it clipped oh, yeah. we we already yeah. talked a little about about not having to reuse a lot of the stills i know you're not a fan of watching reconstructions because it's difficult. But did this, was this one easier than some of the other ones? I, I broke this one up um, uh, for my homework assignment. I watched uh, the first part um, actually Friday night before gridlock, and then um, one in the morning on Saturday, and then one in the morning Sunday, and then one at night Sunday after I got back from work. So I kind of broke it up. That's over probably the whole a good weekend. way to do recon. I kind of did the same thing. I did two one night, and then one, and then one. With 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 this and and again having the, the book really and just for me makes all the difference. It always does, yeah. Um, and the, I, so I, I went, again, I read the novelization first so that I could go into the recon with at least an understanding of the story and know what you know what to look for. And your moment with uh, you know the, the rough and tumble machine, my moment would have been Jamie <laughs> dancing his way out of the out yeah, of the hall. That I was really movie. hoping that we would have got something. I I was reading it and reading it and reading it and he dances out into the arms of the guards and I was like, Oh, I got <laughs> caught up in a capture and escape and a capture again. <laughs> That's definitely gotta be in the story. Um but you know, it's just it was just a fun all around 
way to do it. Um, with this one, I feel like I don't... Had I watched it all in one sitting, I don't think it would have bothered me as much because the pacing is, is, is very well put together. In fact, the first part really pretty flies by pretty quick. Yeah. It does. Um, it, it, really it didn't does. feel... Because even some episodes, as much as I love Doctor Who, there are some episodes that's like, are we to the credits yet? It's kind of, you know, there's just nothing happening. Let's get there, get there. But this one just boom, 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 and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got one down already. The novelization is kind of the same way. It just paces along so quickly. I think that that comes down to the story. There's so much going on, and there's so many pieces to the story that... It just trucks right through it. I felt a little weird um, with, without having the, the paper copy to be able to judge exactly where it was in it. And as, as I'm reading and, uh, you know, kind of going through it, I was like, man, this feels like I've got a huge chunk of this read. And then went and checked. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm three quarters of the way through the book already. <laughs> it's a short book. And it's yeah, a short it book. Really short. Would you say it was 108 pages? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So shortest of the ones we've done to short. I think the other thing that helps tremendously which I think we found with uh, David Whitaker's The Crusade, is when the author of the story writes the novelization for the book, yeah. they often take what they put on screen and kind of uh, embellish it a little bit. They kind of, they're, they're able to broaden the scope, broaden the specter out, uh, without getting away from the story, which I think, it, we'll, we'll, from what I understand, we're going to find a lot more deviation uh, from the target novelizations from the actual stories. The biggest thing I think that was that really the only deviation that was noticeable to me was the fact that uh, Madoc dies in the uh, TV serial, but lives in the book. He's there and sees the the, the uh, TARDIS dematerialize, yeah, and I true. thought, what an interesting choice for the author of this story to kill off that character in the story. I wonder, I want to know what's behind that. The kill off that character in the story, who we've 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 invested a lot in. And then dies. And it know, seems like he, I mean... He dies the, halfway through the third episode. He, he should have died several times. Yes. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like the guy's doomed from, from moment one, but he keeps getting out of it, and he yeah. keeps getting out of it, and then he's actually kind of in charge down in the mine of the, of the Danger Gang, and you think, oh, okay, maybe you're going to make it out. <laughs> and then he doesn't, and I was sad. And then he showed up at the end almost as a throwaway, and I went, oh, yay! Now Medoc can take over since the Doctor's not going to be pilot. It makes me wonder. Give it to him. Yeah, <laughs> it makes me wonder, too, if Ian Stewart Black felt bad about killing that character off, that he, he had fallen in love with that character. Or, as it does in the book, he does disappear and then resurface much later at the end. And so I wonder, I wonder if it was one of the scripted things they just ran out of time for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is why I've got to I've got to do something with this character because I'm not going to be able to. Because revisit this it. is one of the things that really shocked me reading the book. Is we're you know we're in there. The doctor's doing his fiddling with knobs and then telling Ben to throw levers and doing all stuff. And the macro are freaking out, going, "No, don't do that!" And then everything blows up. And then we've got the happy ending, and it was just like, <laughs> did I miss a page? I mean, there's, there's normally a little more cleanup than that, yeah, and, and there wasn't. And so going into the, the, the recon, I was like, okay, okay, okay. And it was the same, same way. Same thing, It was yeah. like just, yeah. and we're done. Yep. And I was like, oh, okay. So I don't know if it, it, it felt, I don't want to say truncated, but it, it definitely felt like there was maybe, I, I didn't need it. I, I mean, think it, that's, But I think, it just felt like maybe there should have been more there. I think that the the cut to aftermath works in this whereas sometimes I feel like cut to aftermath is a cheat. We're just trying to rush to get it done. In this particular story it worked for me because even in the book because I felt like there didn't need to be any of that exposition of 
you know, the, oftentimes you have the characters kind of recount what happened in order to kind of move on to that next element of celebration and things like that. And so I kind of like that. And that, those are the moments that drive me nuts yeah, when, yeah, you, yeah. when you have to come back and explain the the, the ending. It's right, like, okay, right. you didn't do, well, you didn't end the, it right. And sometimes they they I th- I think even though they they some books and television shows will big finish is 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 bad about this is to st- they'll stand around and, and explain the ending e- even when it was clear what what happened <laughs> they'll stand around and explain the ending to me and sometimes it works if it wasn't clear enough and sometimes it just doesn't because it feels like you could have just moved on um this one felt like it didn't need it and they realized that and said <laughs> you know scene 12 back celebrating because everything's dandy now so it, it, that that worked for me both in the book and in the but I, I was the same way when i got to it i was like but i missed something maybe because we expect it now because it's done so often and and what cleanup they would have done would have taken way more time than they had than they had they would the cleanup would have been more of how is this community going to keep going without the macro being in charge and that seems yeah. like it'd be too daunting of a store of a quick wrap up to do so yeah. it's better to just hey we're happy we're celebrating and we're going right right yeah I just honestly that's a story that's ripe for revisiting going back to that colony and finding out did they make it or not yeah. oh yeah, yeah absolutely or did Khan arrive and <laughs> well it, I almost see it as a it's not like the wrong way to do it would be to go back and find out that the macro had some hidden Oh yeah, no no no. You don't want to do that again. Hidden no. sect and they took over the colony again. What what would be interesting is they were so now it was several years that that, that I mean it played out over the the whole subliminal making the suggestion and they were uh, hyper suggestible. But it would be interesting to have another adversary have swooped in and kind fill, of been able to, yeah, position. fill that vo- void. And, and I think you'd have to take the story a different way. You couldn't mirror what happened with the macra, but because they were so vulnerable, you could have somebody else come in and take control, or or or, or you know throw a, a spanner in the ranch and the uh, works there. Spanner in the ranch. That's kind of a redundancy <laughs> there. Throw a spanner in the works in that uh, aspect and 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 take over that colony again in some way. So yeah, I, I agree. How's this work for you? So this colony goes from one villain to another, to another, to another, to another. <laughs> Just they, they're continually they're beset with bad luck. And at one point in time, the planet explodes, maybe, and the colony's on a chunk of asteroid that gets blasted off with just enough gravity to maintain its atmosphere. And it's named Red Rocket Rising. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Daleks show up. I like it. Just these poor people. <laughs> yeah, works. Um, the one thing that kind of surprised me, as, as you pointed out, uh, Glenn, with the book, normally you get a little bit more just because, you know, you've got a little more room to play with. In this one, I felt almost that they went the reverse in, in some ways, uh, and specifically in the mine. Um, and what I, what I noticed of this is, you know, Jamie comes out of the mine shaft, and he's in the room, and he, he dances his jig. I was really taken with that scene. And they make the comment, oh, he's got to be one of the dancers. He's got a skirt on, you know. So he's still in his in his, in his, his his Highland garb, but yet in the episode he's got that weird yeah. silver jumpsuit kind yeah. of thing on. And when they're in the mine, it looks like an old spaceship. I mean, it's it's got like corridors, and uh-huh. it, it doesn't yeah. look like a mine shaft. It doesn't look like yeah. what I would associate yeah. as a mine shaft. And I thought that was a really interesting 
production choice that I don't, which makes me wonder, okay, did the macro maybe crash there? Is that maybe the reason that, you know, maybe they're not native to the planet and that they've been in introduced elements that, you know, did some of this? Because, I mean, they've got metal doors in the mine. That's just weird. <laughs> I don't know why that really struck me. But it did because the book didn't portray it right. that way versus what the what was in the story. I, I think in that situation, uh, back when they're making Doctor Who, you had a writer, and he wrote something, and it was passed on to the production crew. And then the production crew would take and say, like, okay, well, the costumer gets this, and the costumer makes the costumes, and the production designer gets this, and the production designer makes the design. And at that point, the uh, writer has very little input sure. because he has yeah. sold that story. But I think when uh, the writer is then called back to say, hey, would you write the novelization, you're getting more of what he envisioned originally which had he been the costume designer uh, and see, the okay. production designer you would have seen the things that we got in the book but because that's handed off to different departments they they take their own creative liberties and go well this is what i think it would look like i think that the director probably still has a little bit of say in that as well but i think back then it was kind of parceled out and then they all came back and put the pieces together so that's probably why that happened and he instead about kind of probably looked at the production and went that's not exactly what I envisioned. So he stepped back with it when he did the book and was able to give a little more of what his original idea or perception of it was. And I'm point. sure there's just en uh, enough notes to get somebody some help. Yeah. But yeah. the production designer is going to what the production designer does. And, and sometimes if you don't give them the note, you can't be, you know. Right. Yeah, that's, right. Exactly. You know. Which, who knows if that was in there. Um, so, okay. So what did you think when you were watching all these telesnaps and then all of a sudden... Moving pictures. Yeah, I was super <laughs> excited for about four seconds. Yeah. And then well, super disappointed again. You can, you can thank the Australian censors for that, <laughs> censor board for that. Uh, those are actually what are called film trims. And uh, when the story was uh, shipped out to or sold out to the uh, Australia back in the 1950s and 60s and even into the 70s, uh, and today I think their, their censorship is still very strict, uh, they felt that those scenes that you got to see that were moving, they felt those were just a little too disturbing for children. And so what they did is they snipped those pieces out of the film, spliced the film back together, and then created the, the narrative in that way. And fortunately, those film snips were, uh, film trims were actually recovered years later and used in a documentary uh, back in the early 1990s. And so that's why those still to this day exist. Mm. And the only reason I knew about them is because I had seen those clips because they're on the Lost uh, Stories box set. And uh, so I knew they exist. So w when the first one happened, I went, oh. But after that, I thought, oh, wait, there's going to be two or three or more of these because I what's, remember seeing see that, I, I buy that story. But what's interesting is the, the, the first one was the cliffhanger with seeing the macro. I can I, that's that's terrifying. I can buy yeah, that. You yeah. know, this monster with eyes and glowing in the dark. And okay, okay, sure, you can cut that. Well, no, you can't. But I, I, I understand why you would. But then there were a couple of clips of just the doctor talking to himself that were, and it's like, what's scary about that? Well, I mean, and, he's and just in a room. In those situations, the film trims could have been merely for fitting uh, uh, an episode into a certain constraints. As far as Australian tale, t the ABC might have. Uh, different timing for their breaks. Oh, I wonder if they ran a commercial or something. Or something. I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Now, I like think, Star Trek. I okay. don't think the ABC had commercials either because it was a subsidiary of the BBC, but they may have also had a a, a 
shorter time run. So in the UK, something might run 22 minutes, but in the you know in Australia, maybe they get 21 minutes. So you've got to cut out that as well, as well as those censored gotcha. uh, scripts. Okay. Um, but from what I read, the majority of those trims are actually oh, that's just too scary. Now that being said, you look at some of those and go, well, that's not particularly that scary. But I think what they do is 30 seconds of scary is better than 40 seconds of scary. So let's take 10 seconds off of that. So the kids still get scary, but they don't get 40 seconds of scary. They get 20 seconds or 30 seconds of scary. So that might be the the reason why some of those clips where you go, what on earth is that? (laughs) Well, it's because it's had a certain amount of scary to it. (laughs) I also appreciated the the puffs of smoke when um, he jiggered the wire oh, yeah, in the wall yeah. and it would you know or, or when they were in the mine and yeah, the gas was the being gas pumped was in coming, it was a simple effect but it, it it really helped get you into the atmosphere it did it, it ratcheted up the tension quite a bit those yeah. are the loving touches that I've, I, I've always loved that, that Loose Cannon has always done for these is if I've got to tell a story with still pictures I'm going to do everything I can to make it a little more visual a little more interesting and I think they did a really good job all of their reconstructions are top notch as far as i'm concerned for what they had to do so i told you guys a little bit about the galaxy 4 uh recon that they did that i watched that actually they had cut the chumbly out and moved it (laughs) across the across the the telesnap and i always thought that was really clever to do little things like that just to give me a little bit of movement in there Obviously, when uh, I the BBC chumbly. did it, they did they one up <laughs> loose cannons and actually did models, but yeah. uh, CG models. But I want a chumbly. <laughs> one of the things I really liked about the story itself was the balance between Jamie and Ben. Having Ben kind of turn on Team Tardis was a great way to utilize all the characters well. The only one that could have been utilized a little better would be Polly, and she's kind of. Pushed to the background she, as, she, as, as she per always usual. Did. Yeah, but giving at least James, she wasn't making coffee in this yeah. one because she'd made coffee in the previous one, the moon base, but which was helpful. <laughs> well, it, it it follows that. No, she had made say, coffee in uh, Tenth Planet. That was the Tenth Planet. Made she made coffee. Yeah. Well, oh, she, uh, made, she, she made, made coffee. Moon she moon made, made coffee in the moon base. No, she did because that's how they figured out it was a ah. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, it follows that kind of second Doctor template. Where we're going to put Jamie off on his lonesome for a little bit to go do something. And, you know, then somebody's going to get paired up with with the doctor to do something for a while. And the other person will be off on their own. And then we're going to switch them. And I I felt that once Polly and the doctor got together, that all of a sudden that she felt like she had something to do as opposed to just kind of standing there playing second banana to Jamie. Now... She's playing second banana to the doctor, but it, it just any companion would in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it felt Jamie, like maybe there was the, the times when Jamie and the doctor were together. Jamie was playing second banana to the doctor. Exactly. I mean, it just I don't know. It felt like there was a little bit more, and it's it's not that there's she doesn't get any earth shattering moments. She doesn't get to save the day. I mean, she locks the door on the doctor's instructions and then stands in the cupboard screaming with him. But I, that's kind of the standard mo for for some of these '60s era. Um, yeah. serials unfortunately but it just I, that was one of the things that I was really struck with was the balance is it felt like even Ben who didn't have a very big part but had a very integral part because he was the snitch he was the one that had been brainwashed and was turning against him speaking and struggling of, with it speaking yeah. of Ben and where the, I think the video re- reconstruction 
surpasses the audio reconstruction I listened to in the, the book is in the book in the audio reconstruction, Ben seems to do a really quick turnaround. Now, we get subtle hints that he's struggling with the mind control and that he's sort of coming back. And the doctor plays that out a little bit, too, because he continues asking Phil a little more like yourself. So it ends up working well when suddenly Ben's there on the other side of the door helping them out. What the video reconstruction does tremendously is bridge that gap of feeling like Ben turned really back really quick mm-hmm. by having showing us him crawl up onto the gantry and be hiding out in that room when they lock the doctor, Jamie, Polly, Polly and the pilot up. Is Then suddenly I realize that there's a reason why he's on the other side of that door, and I don't get that from the audio in the book. Yeah, I definitely and, didn't get that from I, the book. I loved that we – I mean, luckily those telescope snaps exist because there's only that one line that says Ben had crawled up on the gantry. And I, I was like, oh, okay, that works so much better. And had I been seeing the actual story as it played out you know, back in the 1960s, you would have just seen that, and it oh, would, yeah. would, there would have been no – question as to well he really kind of turned on a dime there but with as he does in the other two so i was really pleased with that because i both times the audio reconstruction of the book i went well ben sure seemed to turn back really quick even though they were laying those seeds that yeah he must be turning back because mm-hmm. he was struggling but uh him just to be there suddenly and be the rescue which i'm glad he was uh gave him redemption for for what had gone through uh i think the other thing that they play out nice is the fact that the doctor gets to Polly before she's uh, mind-controlled yeah. and shorts out hers. And then, oh, what am I thinking? <laughs> I gotta get ben and, and uh, Jamie. And when he gets into the room, he's working on Ben's. So technically, Ben should have been less programmed than Jamie was. But the way that it plays out is I think that Jamie, fortunately not being as susceptible to the mind control, helps because if he had, he probably would have been as bad or f- further along oh, than yeah. Ben would at that point because he doesn't go over to short out uh, Jamie's until much later. So, well, And I can totally buy that Ben would kind of be easier susceptible to those things, partially because of his military background. Yeah, so he he's used to following orders and, right, and doing right. towing the company line, etc., etc. Yeah. So it totally fits in with his character to be able to fall for the mind control and then turn on the team. And I think the book helps to lay that out a bit. It because does, it does yeah. make reference to his military service. Whereas the television show, it, you have yeah. to kind of have remembered from conversations in other episodes that he was a, uh, a military man. And yeah. for the same reason that, you know, yeah, had yeah. this been done with, say, the fourth Doctor, Leela would have been immune to it. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. of yeah, her. Absolutely. I don't want to... Savage. Jamie's a bit of a savage. <laughs> and, you know, Leela is too. And that they... Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Something that I didn't realize, and this is off subject a little bit. Uh, do you guys realize that Jamie has been in every second Doctor story but one? Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me until I read that the other day, and I think it's because we've watched these so much out of order. Oh. But Power is the only story he's not in with the second Doctor. Even the two Doctors, <laughs> he returns to be in that. And in the five Doctors, he shows up as a manifestation. So it's... And he's every single Patrick Troughton Doctor Who story, save one. <laughs> Crazy. That's why we need to get him back. That's right. I want him and Capaldi <laughs> together. I just think that would be so cool. Um, 
The only other thing about this that I, I thought was, um, I don't know, different, or, or maybe maybe because it's early Troughton, and as you pointed out, he hasn't quite figured himself out as the Doctor yet. At no point in time did I genuinely feel the Doctor was overly concerned about any of this. He travels through the whole story kind of like, okay, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Oh, you've got a crazy person running around. Oh, you saw a giant thing? Okay. And he, he, well, he, does he believes and, him. He goes, yeah, and, and, then, and then he goes and investigates. But even when he's investigating, the story that he gets, it's almost like he is aware of the macro, that he knows. That, I think he is. That, yeah. that he's encountered them before well, at some point I don't point know in time. That, that much, but I... Maybe he's just goes, aware of them. The doctor but, goes through this story knowing more than anybody does. Right. The entire and not letting time. on that he yeah. knows. And, and even the mind control. I mean, yeah, he rushes off to save them, but he kind of treats that as, oh, I'm just, okay, yeah, you're, you're good. Yeah. Oh, Ben's been brainwashed. He'll snap out of it. Right. I mean, he's just, he's just, he's, you know, we're going to send you the mines. I'd like a hat. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of these things that are very Patrick Troughton and, and yeah. kind of fun little goofy things, but he never really seems to be. He, he's just almost like you know the Seventh Doctor. Maybe he's just he's waiting for it to play out before he blows something. Up. <laughs> so that that was the one thing that I kind of felt like I don't know, and and maybe it was up to the companions to show the. You know the fear and the and the, the terror of I the macro terror because yeah. I didn't get any of it from the doctor. <laughs> but strangely enough, I kind of liked that doctor. I kind of liked that he he knows he almost has this piece together before anybody else does. Sure, I mean there are times where it's very appropriate and 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 that's exactly the way it should be, and that's how I like him to be. I felt this was a little odd that this story of all stories that he could have been thrust into was the one that. <laughs> Another uh, maybe he just doesn't take the macro very seriously as a threat. I don't know. Well, but uh, no, but I think he. If realized, it had been an infestation of Cybermen, he would have been like, "Oh I boy!" I think he realized <laughs> he had to be. He had to maintain control in order to be in control and figure this out. I thought the other thing that was very Second Doctor was when he does the calculations on the wall. Yeah, and he steps back and he looks at it and he's proud of himself, so he gives himself a ten out of ten. And when the pilot comes in, and goes. Where did you get that? He said, well, I, I got it on my brain. No, you must have broke in and got, because there's only three people on the uh, colony that, that know this uh, calculation. And he's like, oh, really? And he's like, no, I, I got it on my brain. I worked it backwards from, you know, what, what's the question, or what's the answer, and worked back to the question. And uh, he says, you, you've got this, the pilot says, you've got this, as, you know, uh, down as much as our computers do and the doctor says oh really and so he goes and marks out the or wipes off the 10 and makes it 11 because <laughs> he did even better than he'd scored himself i thought that was great i got extra such, credit such yeah. a such a uh, second doctor moment so they're they're clearly there and i think that it, it was from what i understand in reading is patrick Tr trouton kind of stepped into the role in uh power of the daleks and didn't quite know what he was going to do with the character and even in the Highlanders, it's, it, his portrayal is a little uneven because he hasn't really found it. It wasn't until Underwater Menace that he start that we talked a little bit about how he was playing off uh, the other actor and realizing that, you know, he, he was finding himself. And so by the time the moon base comes around and the Macra Terror, he is starting to get into that groove of who this Doctor is. And beyond that, I think that's beyond this story. I think is where we really get 
the doctor as we with the second doctor as we really know him. Oh, and there, there's a lot of that second doctorness when he's messing with the controls. Yes, yeah, and fighting with them, and all of that is so second doctor with uh, Alicia. Official, yeah, not yeah. Ola. Yeah, official. official yeah, Ola was much he's, creepier. He's in going those around and doing snaps than he was in the book. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. He's going yeah. around doing all of the different, you know, controls and, and dials and stuff. And official's coming back and trying to set everything back. And I, I just, I could imagine that in my head. And I thought, oh, this is this is so good. And I, I loved his uh, his concern for Polly. Oh no, she can stay here. It's safer. I'll go down to the mine. No, doctor, don't you think you would be better suited? <laughs> you know, to stay here. And he goes, oh, yes, yes, I'll stay here. <laughs> I didn't quite think of that. I've thought ahead of everything else, but I didn't quite think of that. I should have liked to have had a hat. <laughs> it's good stuff. Showcase his hat fetish it, it, As Chrissy said, this has elevated. I mean, I was already in love with the story before I knew the story. But this has elevated on my yes, please, let's find them. As much as Power of the Daleks, I want to see the Macro Terra return. I also really liked how they used the Macro in it. Like, just based off the production stills and how so much of them are cloud and shadows, especially when you first see them. And then you, I get the impression when you're looking through the window, you really don't get a good view of them either. Yeah. And then Pulling a page when, out of Galaxy 4. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even when you're fighting... When Jamie's fighting it and it collapses and all that big thing in the sequence, you kind of get the impression that you could maybe see more of it, but still only mainly, mainly the claws, yeah. which is the scariest part of it. You know how many full-size macros they made for this production? None. One. <laughs> there was one macro this entire time. The interesting thing about it is when you look through that portal, and you don't see it, it doesn't come across as well, I think, but uh, as it's described, but that one's white. Yeah, on the I, other I side, it's that. a lighter color anyway. You yeah. can definitely see that. They, <laughs> after they were done cutting all of the macro scenes that they needed, moving this thing around to make two in the tunnel. That's why there's there's uh, uh, I think the tunnel uh, scene with Jamie and the two kind of surrounding him plays out a lot better in the book because you yeah. don't have the, the constrictions. In fact, it's that that scene's a little more menacing in your imagination when you're reading the book than it was played out. I think even even if we saw the moving pictures, wouldn't have been as yeah, good. I agree. That being said, after moving that macro around from here to there and in, in the in the ruins so that Madoc can see it, and the doctor <laughs> can see it, and it, after they were done with shooting all of that, they painted the one macro white to shoot those control scenes. <laughs> that was quite interesting. That is interesting. It's like one macro, and now we've got to paint it white. Hopefully, we're done with everything we've got. <laughs> That was another thing. The book kind so of that, the book gave the impression there were a lot of macro in that yeah. control room, and that we only see the yeah. one. In the, in the, obviously, because there was only about one macro, which, which almost implies that there was the control per, macro who's in charge, and the other ones were more of those de-evolved or not as intelligent macro in the tunnels that are the same ones that are underneath gridlock. Oh, that's a that's a interesting theory. So kind of like yeah. like the Dalek yeah. paradigms. They're because the why would you, officers and then the rest are foot soldiers. Why, yeah. why would you go outside? <laughs> yeah, they, they always talked about that they were pumped everything in so that they could move about the colony at night. So why? <laughs> <laughs> Just stay there. There's nothing outside but death. You can't breathe. Well, but they they could at night. That's why the the colony would would go it to would sleep shut down yeah. because they would pump the gas into the atmosphere, and that's how they were slowly 
flooding the atmosphere with the gas was at night they would go out there and make sure is is it working can we breathe out here yet okay not quite yet so we'll go back in during the day have the workers work some more i think the end game for the macro was to eventually completely flood the planet's atmosphere so again so that they could come to the surface and live forever so, so do you think do you think based on on, on that are they are they native to, to this planet? Well, the doctor says... Or are they terraforming it? Well, the, no. The doctor says that at one time the atmosphere was suitable for the macro. And so, I don't remember if it was portrayed that way in the book or the, the, the uh, show or both. But he says at one time the atmosphere was suitable for the macro. And they were driven underground. And when the colony arrived to the planet that was now suitable for humans and they colonized, the macro started to utilize them to to terraform the planet back to how it was previous when they were when they were. See, I almost wonder planets. though if that's just more of an educated guess that the doctor's putting those pieces. Well, it could together. have been, but I think based on Keith's theory that maybe there are certain uh, uh, levels of intelligence within the macra. I have a feeling that they probably at one point were all pretty just mindless bugs or giant bugs. That was the interesting thing, too. Sometimes they would describe them as giant crabs, and sometimes they would describe (laughs) them as giant bugs. But they were just mindless bugs that got driven underground. And the intelligence comes from having... Almost necessity. Necessity, yeah, to, to figure out how to manipulate the colonists and or because you got the impression that the colonists had been there that the, the, the macro were only had only been in control for like you know a, maybe half a dozen maybe a dozen years yeah but that the colonists had been there for a long time yeah. in fact something i read discontinuity guide or something alluded to the fact that the reason the, the guy is called pilot is because that position when the when the colony landed he's not the original pilot but pilot comes from the fact that he would have been the the uh captain or pilot of the ship that landed them there and then that became a political position that was then passed on from generation to generation and that's why they still called him pilot so i thought that was kind of an interesting kind of kind of a uh play on that they late they did better later with uh uh face of evil with uh the colonists there that had de-evolved the 17 yeah but we're using the same you know variations of the same words they so that actually okay i can buy that then because i I, while i still like the idea of space fearing macro i i I don't know why just macro on a spaceship driving somewhere i think is a really cool uh, image but i think they evolved to become intelligent if the colony is made up of because with any colony ship you land and you send out your survey teams and you figure out where this is where we're going to build the colony and the first thing you do is you offload all your supplies and then you begin cannibalizing the ship because you have to that's that's what you so i can buy that that that's maybe why the mines looked well yeah like no, corridors I, because I, maybe I'm, they've cannibalized you know they, they broke the ship apart to build the foundations of the colony i'm glad you brought that up because i i, I would suppose and i kind of thought of this when you said that earlier I would suppose that when they landed, the first thing they do is seek shelter. Now, what do they do? They find these caves. Now, they don't realize that Macker had been using these caves to get down further into the earth where they could continue to live. And so they say, okay, we've got a cave system here, instant uh, shelter. So what they do is then they, as you say, they cannibalize a ship and they utilize that to kind of create a uh, uh, colony within that cave entrance. And, yeah, as they 
further drive back, they plaster the walls with the metal from the ship. So yeah, I think you're I think you're on to something there with that. And I, I just from looking at it, I also got kind of got the impression that it was put in there to make sure that the tunnels stay up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like shorting them up. Yeah. And, yeah. The other thing that you have to consider is I put way too much thought into the mine shaft. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> control comes from the fact that there was a control center for this colony. The colonists put the control center in there. They had a division that was control. The macra, basically, as was alluded to as them being parasites, worked their way from the, the body up to the brain. And the control is the brain. So the guy that's in there that's really super old, you know, how the, the, the facade comes down and they actually show the controller. Which was terrifying. I can see why that was old. cut. <laughs> well, he's yeah. very old. And so I get the impression that he's been held there captive as a figurehead for them they're using utilizing the the image of him because he's clearly aged a lot and but nobody apparently has noticed because they've been all mind washed that this guy has been tw- you know so maybe they've been in control for a lot longer than that well, and based it, on the picture maybe it's yeah, 30 years that could be as well um but so control probably was just the 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 brain center of the colony and that was put there i don't i didn't get the impression the macra had created control i think they took it over yeah and that's yeah. how they manipulated the the colony so now do we feel vaguely bad that this guy perished in the explosion without a second thought we're gonna, we're gonna blow up control and it's like there's a guy in there uh i would have had the the pincers not come in and threaten the guy i got the impression that 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 the macro realized at, at that, that point, point that they didn't really need him anymore he, he, because they were I, they, I, they were holding him back in case they were called out because they have a still image of this guy or at least in the book it makes it sound like they they're using a video image that's synced up a little bit to yeah, maybe his they, mouth was moving or something yeah. like that because the doctor notices and it's not quite in sync maybe he's their trump card they put this image up of him but they keep him held back in case anybody ever challenges him which ends up paying off for them because the doctor does challenge him we want to see control and so that was always their intended use for him was to be able to parade him out as an actual physical being that ends up backfiring on him because the guy's so scared to death that he, he doesn't know what the heck to do at that point. But I get the impression he's being held hostage in there as a figurehead if needed, and he did end up having to be utilized by control. At that point, when they realize, oh, they're not seeing through this, so they kill him, put the, the screen back up, and they figure, well, the Trump card didn't work anyway, so they offed him. So yeah. I kind of got the impression okay. that... I, just, I didn't... I thought it was more of a threat thing that just... I, I didn't follow that through that he'd have been killed. Okay, it works for me now. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I never got the impression it was Control ever talking. I always thought it was the macro. Yes, the macro, speaking I believe, was speaking control. the whole time, yeah. Well, because he, when it, when they cut to him the first time... His he, voice doesn't sound the same either. He doesn't no, sound really the same, but he kind of does this like, what, what do you want me to tell yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. So... Well, I think because he hadn't been speaking, and yeah. so he doesn't know what to say. Yeah. Because if if he had been forced to be the voice of control, he would have been able to pull some sort of script. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just, okay, well, I've been saying this, so to be convincing, I'll say the same thing. I think also... Uh, um, oh, I just lost that thought. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of good in this one. Yeah, yeah there really is. is. Good stuff. All right, what do we got coming up on the schedule, Sean? Well, coming up on the schedule next, or this week, Friday, for uh, Friday Night Who is Heaven Sent, 
which, by the way, was something we missed in the news segment, was nominated for a we we Hugo? we we mentioned that uh, mention a month or two week? back. It, it, it actually lost to uh, AKA uh, Jessica jo- or to Jessica Jones story, yeah. AKA. I'm not sure the episode. It's itself. it's one of the tenant heavy episodes, and uh, it, it actually won. Uh, he, he, it was nominated in the same category, and, and Keith and I both alluded to the fact that it was two very strong yeah. things, and it was really hard to decide. Well, I really liked this particular episode because it was very David Tennant heavy, and it was the one of the best episodes of the series. It's the final episode of Jessica Jones. Yeah. So, and this is, and this was, you know, but this is Doctor Who, so we want Doctor Who, so it, it lost to Jessica Jones. But in my opinion, it couldn't have lost to a better story. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. It just was. It was. It was probably the best story as far. There were two of them that I really, really liked. I mean, I liked the entire series. Every story in there was great, but there were two particular ones that were highlights of that series, and that one won. So one of those won. Well, we can't be too mad about that, though. So Heaven Sent is uh, for Friday Night Who with Peter Capaldi, and we're doing Peter Capaldi because we are finishing our Beyond the Doctor run for this year. Um, which may, I don't know if you guys enjoy it. Maybe it's something we can come back and revisit again. Let us know. Um, <laughs> or not. What? <laughs> uh, but we're going to uh, talk Peter Capaldi and his performance of In the Loop, which is the spinoff movie to... The Thick of It. Or The Thick of It. It's not called In the Thick of It. It's just The Thick of It. The Thick of It. Which I understand you don't need to have watched The Thick of It in order to enjoy In the Loop, so we're going to do that. And you certainly might appreciate it more, but you don't have to have seen it. Yeah. And I understand he is in it, so that's a <laughs> <laughs> he's definitely in it. Top build, and it's not one for kids. <laughs> it's not one for kids. Important safety note. <laughs> <laughs> it is streaming on Netflix, at least in the U.S. So, oh yeah, cool. Yeah. I should get that watched. <laughs> Uh, so we'll have that, and then uh, a quick change to what had been scheduled before as we've kind of hammered out the schedule coming up into con season. Uh, Friday night, who the following week, or the first uh, Friday in September, is the Silurians, or if we have to say it, Doctor Who and the Silurians. Uh, <laughs> at least the first part of it, because it's such a long one, so we'll do the first, it's a, it's a seven-parter, I'm I not crazy enough. Right, yeah. uh, so we'll do the first four parts that week, and then the following three the uh, uh, following week. In between those, our show, uh, we're going to do some more Lethbridge-Stewart stuff. Uh, we're going to review the Showstoppers. No, that's not right. We've no, already reviewed uh, the Showstoppers. Grandfather and Infestation. No, we're, 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 we're hoping to talk with Jonathan Cooper, who oh, wrote right, the Showstoppers. Right, yeah, yeah. That's yes, where yes. I went with that. And then the following week, because we've already reviewed the Silurians, so the following week we'll actually be reviewing the Grandfather Infestation and the next short story. And have we decided are we going to attempt to read all gather around your copy of uh, Havoc 2 and uh, put that on there? I think we should treat Havoc 2. I think it was suggested that we do that one, but I think Havoc 2 almost needs to be, even though we've done a majority of those stories in review already, I, I almost think we, we should talk about it more, but I almost think we'll we should do out. Havoc 2. Separate since there is enough new nuggets. Two in stories, it. yeah. yeah. Um, and Maybe then, a side trip. There you go. What we'll do? Uh, I'll do one more week. We'll do uh, after that the God Complex for Friday Night Who, which will happen to star Spencer Wilding, who is the guest of honor at this year's TopCon here in Topeka. So come on down and uh, see us uh, at TopCon if you're in the area, and if you're not in the area, come drive. Glenn will put you up on his couch. <laughs> and uh, and we'll 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 have we'll have some fun at a con. Yeah. It's a lumpy couch, but you're welcome to sleep there. 
and ditto goes for me. I got I got a lot of couches. So <laughs> yeah, you got more couches than I do. I just like calling you out. So. <laughs> you can sleep on Key's couch, but Cody's gonna lick your face. Yeah, Cody's that's Cody's couch. So, so he'll you can fight sleep you for on my couch. floor. <laughs> you don't want to sleep on his floors. They're all hardwood. Open invitation. I'll put up anybody who wants to come to TopCon. So that does it for that. All right. Well, uh, if uh, you'd like to support this program, you like what you're listening to on a weekly basis, uh, we've got a server to pay for uh, coming up. Um <laughs> So uh, a good chunk of that's going to come from our uh, Patreon uh, supporters. Listeners uh, like you. <laughs> if uh, you would like to uh, help support on Patreon, uh, you can click on the uh, click-through link on the right-hand side of the page on TravelingTheVortex.com. Uh, any amount uh, that you want to uh, donate to us, we would appreciate it. Every bit of that goes back into the show. If you are already a patron supporter, and we have some all-stars as far as patron supporters go, uh, thank you. And uh, we, we we just cannot extend enough gratitude for that because it really does. That 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 is what keeps the, the server for us each year, year to year, when we have to renew that. So we certainly appreciate that. Uh, and there are some click-through links to some uh, product sponsors. Uh, we do get a portion of those proceeds as well that go right back into this show. And I think that's it. Uh, if that's going to do it for this week, until next week, I'm Glenn. I'm Sean. I'm Keith. Cheers. Good night, everybody. Be seeing you. You have been listening to Traveling the Vortex. Doctor Who and all of its associated programs are owned and trademarked by the BBC. No infringement is intended or implied.